Welcome to the Life on Repeat podcast with me, Laura Valancourt, licensed mental health counselor, geriatric mental health specialist, and dementia coach. I'm so happy that you found us. Well, hey, everyone. I am really excited to come on today and welcome our guest. Her name is Marianne. And let's see, Marianne, what is your last name? How do you say your last name? Shuko. Shuko. Okay, Marianne Shuko. Marianne is a registered nurse. She's an author and a dementia daughter. She is also a co-founder and manager of allsauthors.com, and we'll be definitely talking about that in our talk today. It's a global community of authors writing about Alzheimer's and dementia from their personal experiences to light the way for others. So thank you and welcome, Marianne, for coming on and talking to all of us today. Thank you, Laura, for inviting me to come on your show. It's a real privilege. Oh, well, uh, this is a this is a real honor for me because you have been doing this work for some time now. Can I can I ask how long have you been working with all's authors and doing this work? We started back in 2015. So it's we just had our sixth anniversary. Fantastic. Oh my yeah. gosh. Wonderful. Yeah, we thought it was a one month thing. We planned on doing it for one month. <laughs> but you know what plans are. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, clearly there's a need. <laughs> clearly there's an interest. <laughs> yeah, there is. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you mind telling us a little bit about All's Authors and where did this idea come from? And yeah, lead us on that little journey if you don't mind. So uh, as you mentioned, we're a global community of authors who have written about Alzheimer's and dementia from our personal experiences uh, as a caregiver specifically, whether it was for a parent a spouse, a grandparent, in some cases, a child. And many of these authors have written just their one book. They're not professional writers or authors, but they have a story to tell. And they wanted to tell it because after years and years of caregiving and recovering from that, they realized that they had a lot of knowledge and they wanted to share it with other people so other people would not feel as alone or adrift or confused and frustrated as they were when it was their turn. And I wrote a novel based on my experiences as a nurse working in dementia. And when I published it, I self-published it because not anyone, no one, I couldn't find anybody interested in a book about Alzheimer's. It's a love story. It's a novel. So I self-published the book. And after I did that, that was a feat in and in of itself. But then I realized, well, how do I how do I market this book? I had no idea. I had no background in publishing, marketing, anything like that. So I had joined a group online called Clean Indie Reads, which was a group of authors who had written books that are considered clean, meaning they are free of sexual, graphic sex, violence, anything like that. Gentle Reads, which my book is. So I joined them early on when they were first getting started. And what we did was we supported one another by sharing tweets and Facebook postings and Instagram pictures and all of that on social media of each other's books. 
and using um, our blogs to promote other authors and newsletters and just really being supportive to one another under the premise that a it's not a good idea to constantly be on social media screaming buy my book and b if i help somebody with their book they'll help me with my book and we're all kind of looking for the same audience and that was a lot of fun that work while i did that for a year or two and then i was thinking about it and i thought hmm i wonder if i had started an organization like this to help authors of books about Alzheimer's, if maybe we could have the same kind of success, maybe together we could build a platform, raise awareness of Alzheimer's and dementia, the personal uh, caregiving stories, and each individual book and blogs, because we also focus on blogs as well. I wonder if that would be something that could be of, be of help to everybody. It would help the authors get their book out. It would help the readers, the caregivers find a good resource, something that's going to help them on their journey. So I reached out to an author I knew, Jean Lee. She wrote Alzheimer's Daughter, a memoir, and she was immediately intrigued and wanted to start working together. And I asked if she knew anyone else. And she knew um, another author, Vicki Tapia, who wrote a memoir called Somebody Stole My Iron. And she was more skeptical than Jean at first. She didn't understand how helping other people promote their books would help her, but she decided to give it a try. So we got together and spent a month in June of 2015, Alzheimer's and Brain Awareness Month, uh, tweeting and posting and sharing on our blogs each other's books. And there were a couple of others that we picked up along the way who did not stick around, but we we worked with them too. And we had a good time. We really enjoyed it. And in November, which is Caregiver Appreciation Month, we decided, well, why don't we try it again? So we did. And then we went back a year later in June of 16. We gathered together again, the three of us, and said, why don't we start a blog? And in June this month, we every day, Monday through Friday, we will feature a new book from a different author. So we had to come up with 20 authors who would be willing to write us you know, a blog post and about their book. And we didn't really know how we were going to pull that one off. But my gosh, at the end of the month, we we did it. And we had more people in the queue. And we really had a great time. And we found that we became good friends. We loved working together. And we just said, let's keep this going. Let's happen. So, but we won't do this every week, every, every day, we will do it once a week. So once a week, we have a new author, a new book that comes out on our blog. We started a bookstore, so we have all our books. There are over 300 categorized in an easy format for people to find exactly what they're looking for. So if they're looking for a book about caring for your mom with early onset Alzheimer's, you can find that. Caring for your father with Lewy body disease, you can find that. If you need a kid's book, if you're looking for a caregiver guide, kind of a how-to manual, you can easily find all of these things. We have poetry. We have books with art, photography a lot of stuff. There's a lot of books and blogs in our collection. So um, then we decided to to build the podcast. It was kind of my idea because I listen to podcasts all the time and it was, hmm, wonder if we could do that. And part of the impetus for that is the realization that as much as we all love reading and we all use reading as a means to find our way through a difficult situation, caregivers, A, may not do that. Just not their inclination, which is okay. They say the average person reads like 12 books in a year. 
or they just don't have time. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to look for books and they don't have time to sit and read. So we thought maybe they would have time to listen to our authors, tell them a story about their story, and they could do that while they were doing other things. And that seemed to work out really well. So our podcast is almost a year old. We have traveling libraries. There are several across the country, which are collections of our books donated by the authors. We can bring them to Alzheimer's and dementia events in the community. One of them just went to an event in Houston, first one since the pandemic. But, you know, I mean, we don't have a lot of libraries traveling around out there, but we do have some. And it's nice for the people to see the actual books, the physical copies, you know, put out on a table that they can look through and maybe find something that speaks to them. So um, we've got a lot going on. We're real busy. Incredible. Oh, my gosh. I get I get chills just listening to you talk, Marianne, because I wrote a bunch of notes as you were talking. One of the things that I am so struck by is the power of story, right? And how hearing, one of the things that I I hear so much from the people that I meet with is how alone they feel and how isolated they feel in their experience. And there's a lot of reasons for that, partially because of the physical isolation that caregivers often experience in general, but then also because there's not a dialogue happening in the community, you know, in the, in the smaller communities and the greater communities. And so what you're doing, I, I love this grassroots movement towards, you know, supporting each other, all coming together and supporting a common theme as far as sharing information and sharing stories. So I wonder if you don't mind just talking a little bit about your thoughts about the power of sharing story and sharing experience. Dementia has a huge stigma attached to it. Many times parents or families will not even discuss that diagnosis in public or even amongst themselves. And that is a problem because now you've insulated yourself from any potential help that you might get. And what a lot of people don't realize is probably everybody that they know has some kind of dementia experience, whether it was you know, somebody very close to them or somebody on the periphery, but people, unfortunately, these days are more and more aware of somebody that has this, this illness. So because of that stigma and people's reluctance to discuss their situation with others, they find themselves more and more alone, having a lot of questions, not knowing where to get help. In a lot of communities, there are resources available. They have the Alzheimer's Association. They have the Office of Elder Services or the Office on Aging, social services, even people that work for you know the Medicaid office. There's pe- there are organizations or groups that are with long-term care or assisted living facilities that may be open to the public. There's a lot out there, but you need to seek it out. Nobody's going to knock on your door and say, oh, I heard you had this going on. Let me help you. That's not the way it works. So people need to be open to the idea of maybe exposing this, this family secret, really. I know a lot of people feel reticent to share the diagnosis because they don't want to embarrass or diminish their loved one's reputation or their sense of self. And that's a huge thing. 
but it benefits everybody if you can reach out. Yeah. And storytelling is a terrific way because when you sit and share stories or hear somebody else's story, you're going to find somebody else who's kind of like got the same thing going on that you do. And they might have figured out how to do this or how to fix that. And then you can borrow from them. Mm-hmm. And that's vice works both ways. And then you may have something to share with someone else to help them get through their day. Yeah. And it's incredibly valuable. Yeah. And even I love what you're saying. Oh my gosh. And I think about even if, even in the sharing, if your situations are so different, because we all know, right, that one person with Alzheimer's doesn't look like the next person, um, or one caregiver's experience doesn't look like another. We're all so unique and individual. And there's something so powerful about sharing our experiences. And even if someone's experience isn't going to give you helpful tips or change the way you're doing things, just knowing that there are other people out there that are like you said, kind of experiencing the theme, the grand, the greater theme of what they're going through can be so, so valuable. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned too, is all of these resources that are out there, these professional resources. And what I have found too is, and I think they're fantastic resources and many of them are so medicalized, you know, it's, it's this kind of medical model approach and, or this real professional approach, you know, when we look at the state agencies and the support that sometimes they focus on. I love, I just love what you're doing with this movement because it's from the people, you know, the direct people that are experienced, that have experienced this on a personal mm-hmm. level. And that, uh, you know, that is that, that I think is what is needed to kind of break the stigma that you talk about is having, hearing stories from real people. And you also mentioned, you mentioned so many things, sorry, I'm kind of just highlighting because it was so, so spoke to me that I would go so far as to say the same thing, Marianne, that I think everybody we meet has some sort of connection to dementia in some way, whether they know somebody or they've heard, you know, their, their boss's family or their friend's family. And and many of us have had our own personal experiences as well. So do you mind sharing a little about your own personal experience with dementia? Sure. Well, I'm a registered nurse. And when I made a decision to pursue a career in nursing in the nineties, I um, decided to try out a nursing facility to see if I would like it. I got a job as a nursing assistant in a very nice facility in a very wealthy suburb of Boston. So I was treated to like kind of the best of the best, which I quickly learned after that was not necessarily, they weren't all the same, but that's another story. So anyway, I was working in this facility at the time, I had an, an aunt whom I really loved, my Aunt Gilda. She was my mother's oldest sister by 15 years, and she had Alzheimer's. And she had been living with her daughter, and her daughter had was raising children, and it became too much. So she was in a nursing facility. But that was basically the only experience that I really had with this illness. I did not know too much about it. But when I started working at this place, they soon sent me to work in their dementia care unit on the third floor. And 
I went up there one night, didn't know what to expect, and found that I really enjoyed it. And I loved the people up there. I had a good time. And I said, I'll work here anytime. I used to work overtime, extra shifts. It was, I enjoyed it a lot. So um, I remember those people. They stuck with me. It's been 30 years now, and I can remember their names and their faces and different stories about them. They made a huge impact on me. And then I, you know, went on to nursing school, moved to New York, and started working in the hospital. Well, when you're in working in the hospital, you're going to have dementia patients. Can't avoid it in most cases, unless you're working in labor and delivery, maybe. But um, they're everywhere. So again, I experienced a lot of that. But I became a case manager, and one of my responsibilities was discharge planning, and it was doing that when I learned about placing people out into the community after hospitalization, whether they were going to go to like short-term rehab, into long-term care, if they needed home care, if they needed hospice, what resources are available, how do you get Medicaid? And I learned all that stuff. So I worked with hundreds of people like through my 15 years in hospital nursing. And all of that one day, I, I wanted to write a book. I kept thinking about writing a book and I decided that I would start a story and I did start a story and the story was not going anywhere at all. And then I met this couple one day at work who captivated me. She had dementia. She was beautiful, 86 year old woman. She was very um, charming. She would laugh and smile and say, Oh, I'm so mixed up. That was her phrase. I'm so mixed up when we would have a conversation and her husband was with her and he was very frail. Like he was probably older than her. She was 86. So he was maybe pushing 90. But the thing about these two is they had driven all the way from the state of Florida to New York on their own, coming home from wintering. And she, everything was fine. I, it's hard to believe that they managed to do this trip, but they did. But when they got home, she fell and fractured her pelvis. So that's why she was at the hospital in a rehab to go to another rehab. And I met their son and he said, you know, when my mom leaves here to go to the rehab, I'm coming up and I'm going to drive them. I don't want my father to take my mother from here. Is that all right? I said, that's fine. Whatever you want to do, that's that works. But then I kept thinking about it later on saying, hmm, I wonder what would happen if the son didn't show up or they missed him or something happened and the two of them took off again together. Where would they go? What would they do? Because we knew they would go for a long ride because they just came back a 1,300-mile ride. Yeah, so that became my story, um, Blue Hydrangeas. I love that. Oh, my gosh. Thank you mm -hmm. for sharing. I'm always so struck by these personal experiences, you know, and I also am a care manager and have worked in hospital settings. And so, man, I, I can just appreciate and I want to highlight this for our listeners, too, that professionals that work with individuals who have memory impairment come from all different areas, you know, in, in medicine and healthcare. And so I love, I'm a little biased, but I love the experience that you have being able to be in the hospital setting, being able, you know, having experience in memory care, and then also being that sort of bridge between the medical health world and home, whatever home may look like, you know, moving forward after a hospitalization. And so I can imagine that you have seen so many cases, so many stories and, and can really speak to that statement that we, we talked about earlier, that no person's situation is ever the same. 
Yeah. So I, I guess one of the things that I would be curious to ask you is, what do you wish that you knew at the start of your dementia journey that you didn't learn until later? Like when, when you started, because you know, I mean, you know a lot now, and part of it is through the work that you did. Part of it is through the, this work that you're doing now. So what are, yeah, I, I imagine you're filled with all kinds of tips and advice and <laughs> hindsight <laughs> experiences. Yeah, that you can say that. I wanted to continue on with the, the fact that my dementia journey didn't end when I wrote my book. I soon, within a year or two, started living my book because my de- my stepfather was diagnosed with dementia. Wow. So you wrote the book first. Mm-hmm. And, and I had Al's authors already. Was in, was oh my gosh. And then, yeah. and then, and then you had the personal then, family. Tell us yes. about that. Wow. And I had, uh, we call us the Alzi sisters. My Alzi sisters were there when I first came up with the with the notion that there's something wrong with him. And I think he has dementia. And so they were really helpful in supporting me and helping me get through that. Because I'll tell you, even though I went to work every day and helped people navigate this kind of a process, when it became my process, it was, I didn't know what to do. I was sort of confused and frozen and I knew like, you know, the checklist, do this, do this, do this. But then like, I didn't know how to do these things. And I think that's where a lot of people get tripped up. So they'll get a list of people they need to call agencies and whatever they have to do. And, you know, they know to make these calls, but they don't know what to say. And they don't know how to handle it. And they don't know how they're going to get there when they have their person with them. And they don't want to bring the person in. There's like a lot of things going on getting that medical diagnosis, which was like really important. They, my um, mom and her husband, they um, had this doctor that they'd been going to for like 15 years. And I was getting a lot of phone calls and messages, emails and texts from family and friends that telling me stuff that was going on with him that wasn't right. And things they were observing at their home that were upsetting and confusing to them and just triggers something's wrong here signs so I would ask my mom when they would go to the doctor and she would give me the report wow everything's fine I'm doing great my heart's good his heart's good we have good blood pressure okay but what about this oh no that's fine so I then I started I got to the point where I would call the office and say my mom's coming in today and this is what they see was going on and could the doctor please address it well he wouldn't address it you know, I'd ask my mom, like, well, he wouldn't call me back. And I'd ask my mom, well, did he do this? Did he do that? No, no, no. So I would write him letters, like detailed letters, and send them. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't helpful. Once in a while, I'd get a call from him. But I'd say, you know, we really were concerned about his behaviors and this and this and this. And he'd say, okay, well, you know, I'll check it out. And then he didn't check it out. Well, then I said, all right, now I'm going to go there when they go there. I'm busy body. I'm the bossy older sister, you're, so I'm a good advocate. <laughs> yeah, I visited my mom monthly. I lived; in, she lived in Massachusetts. I lived in New York, so I had a 250 mile commute one way, and I would try to get up there once a month. And I would go like during the week, so I had so she could go to the doctor and do business and stuff. 
And when she was like, how old was she then? 80, 86 or seven. And they were living really, they were living a good life in spite of the advanced years. And she was very active, but um, went with them to the doctor. And I asked him, I thought he was depressed. Because all he did was sleep. This man slept 20 hours of the day. I mean, wow. yeah. I would be there and he wouldn't wake up unless it was to eat. And then he'd go right back into his recliner and crash. And we just went about our business. And it was very pleasant because when he was awake, he was a pain. He was very disruptive. And he wasn't nice. So, you know, people just assume, let him let sleeping dogs lie. But I knew it wasn't good and it wasn't normal. So I thought, well, maybe he's depressed and maybe you know, we can get him on some kind of antidepressant, you know, perk up mm -hmm. and you know, they'll have a better life because he was just not, wasn't a good partner at that point. But the doctor couldn't even conduct the depression exam. He was asking him questions and he wasn't like understanding, couldn't follow it. So the doctor just gave up. Mm -hmm. Well, I can't do this. So I'm like, well, then. You need to find somebody who can. <laughs> That's the next step. Well, he didn't want to be helpful. So I just, with my background, just decided to take control. And what do I do next? I need a new doctor. So I asked my mom, is it okay if we get another doctor? And she said, okay, which kind of surprised me because she was crazy about this other guy. I don't know why, but she was. Her oh, thing about him was oh, he was so oh, handsome. So oh. she was <laughs> Oh, he's so handsome. <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. So uh, anyway, she said, okay. But she said, find a woman doctor because he likes a woman doctor. So I'm like, well, great, I'll find a woman doctor. So, you know, I go online and I find this place and it's right near where they live. And it's called Complex Geriatric Management. I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I want. It's woman and, and nurse practitioners, all woman office. I said, this is great. So I did. I got an appointment a month later. I bring them in, diagnosed right there. She says, he has dementia. He needs to be in a memory care unit. Well, I could have fallen on the floor. I did not expect that at all. I thought we would go home and give him some pills and maybe have a home health aide come and everything would be great. Yeah. But then I get dropped with that bombshell. He can't drive anymore. You need to get, take his license and his car away from him. And I'm with my daughter, and we're looking at each other going, oh, my God. My mother was severely hard of hearing, so she wasn't in the conversation. And I had to go home and tell her oh boy. these things. And it was just horrible. But she, I think she knew deep inside. Mm -hmm. She did know that, you know, something was dire and something needed to be done. And I, she said, will you help me? And I said, I will help you. But once we start on this pathway, we are not turning back. I am not going to stop it. Regardless of what you want, we're going to see this through because we, we owe it to him to find out what his problem is and see what can be done for him. We can't ignore it. So she agreed. So we did. We went through the whole dementia workup. He went for an MRI. I had to take him. I took him to the neurologist, took him to the psychiatrist, and these were like heartbreaking visits because he just failed everything. And she wasn't present for that. My mom, uh, in the midst of all of this, mom got into an automobile accident with a friend and fractured many bones. 
Oh my gosh. And yeah. In the midst of all this. So you, and so you as a daughter were um, at this point, man, taking over and managing practically everything. And what, yeah. what, what did your home life look like? I mean, were you working at that time? Were you time? And I was, you know, I would go off for my days off. I would drive up like every three or four weeks and spend three or four days taking care of situations for them, which included, you know, all these doctor visits, set online banking and, and moving their accounts and becoming the power of attorney, took it to a lawyer. We went to an elder law attorney and, and put paperwork in place on both of them. You know, I was cleaning the house. I was cleaning out the refrigerator, scrubbing floors and doing things like that because that stuff wasn't getting done. And I would go there and I would just work, work, work. And come home and be exhausted and have to go back to work. And I had one child, she was in college or high school at the time. No, she was in college and she was living in school. So she wasn't really around a lot. And my husband, you know, he was supportive. Mm-hmm. He had to put up with me, you know, going out frequently. And then I got to the point where I would just get a phone call and have to up and leave because something hap- was happening that was serious and I had to be present. So we got to that point as well. So um, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, I didn't live with them. I didn't live with my mom. Like after he was placed in the facility, her niece came to live with her and stayed with her until um, as long as she could. And then mom ended up in a hospice for what we thought was like the last two weeks of her life. But she rallied and went into rehab and actually left and went to live with my brother for a couple months before she passed away. Mm -hmm. You know, she had a bit of a reprieve at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your story, I mean, again, while everyone's situation is so unique, there, there is this sort of theme too of there's a, a concern that arises, family becomes aware, whether you're living with your loved one or you you don't. And then it, it seems that one person, I see this so often, it's, it's one person that, that kind of ends up stepping up, or maybe there is only one person available to step up. And the, I, I guess what I notice so much is that life doesn't stop. You know, it doesn't, Everybody is living their own full life, whether you're working or you, you know, you have your stuff going on and then, and then there's this on top of it. And so many people, I just hearing your experience, you're a professional, you're a nurse, you were familiar and educated. You had the head smarts about this world. And then there's the emotional parts of what's happening and no time to even process that, you know, you, you're having to continue your regular life and then add being the advocate and doctor and nurse and housekeeper and transportation and appointment scheduler, you know, on top of all of that. But then there underneath, there's this emotional experience that's occurring that so many people don't even have the luxury of being able to sit with because you're so busy. Did, did you find that too? the impact on your emotional self? Yeah, I I, um, began to withdraw from a lot of activities and things that I was involved with and to make time to take care of whatever popped up with them because I was now managing three lives. I had my life and her life and his life. 
Yeah. And they weren't even in the same place at that point. So then I had all the systems that were involved in caring for each one of them. She was on a home and home care and palliative care at home. And then he was in a facility and with everything that goes with that in hospice. He was in hospice as well. So I had to deal with those people trying to manage the financial and legal pieces as well, yeah. because we set up a trust for my mother. And I had an attorney help me with that. But the, the way the attorney helps is they give you like a three and a half page list of things to do. Right. So now you have to do them. Go gather you know, all these documents. and Yeah, get all- nobody, no one can do it for you. And yeah. the way that the system is set up, like they des- you designate like one person and you're the only person that can make that phone call. Nobody right. can else can speak to anybody. They can't speak to, you know, my brother. If my brother called and said, I need to find out, you know, for my mom. And well. No, that's supposed to be this Marianne. Are you Marianne? No, well, not me. You know, now Marianne's got to do this. So people couldn't even help if you even have people. To couldn't help. even delegate. Yeah, really hard. No, there's like no delegating. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't even have like wasn't even like my mother could help me with him because mm-hmm. I mean once he she had that crash and he was moved within days of that event because he was it just was so apparent he was of no benefit. To having her him around when she was so badly injured, she couldn't even feed herself or anything. Right. We had that was expedited. Yeah. But yeah. she wasn't even like part of the process and she couldn't even help with any of it. And then she was in grief and shock right. from that and from her own disabilities. Like she never really recovered from yeah. those injuries. And it just continued to get worse for her. And he only lived for 18 months after that. So that was kind of a blessing. Mm -hmm. What did you do? I like to ask this question because I know our listeners, we're always seeking ways to take care of ourselves. You know what? So my question is, what are some of the things that you've done or you wish you would have done for self-care, you know, to, to really pay attention to your own emotional experience and physical, you know, all mental, physical, emotional, spiritual experience. What, what did you do that helped? And what do you wish you would have done? Well, I'm a big reader. So I use reading as a way to relax and to escape. So I did read a lot and I listened to a lot of audio books too. And I had a lot of time to do that when I was driving back and forth to their house. So I did do that. One of the things I did that was not a good thing. And I, not only did I do it then, but I, I did it again since then, is put on a lot of weight. Okay. I didn't have time to go to the gym so much anymore. I try would try and, and then you know, it's one of those things where you could go for like two or three weeks and then something would happen and then wouldn't go for two or three months. You were prioritizing. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we hear this too. And it's it's like when you only have so much time and you are barely surviving, there are things that are going to drop off the list and caregivers tend to sacrifice themselves when they have to make those decisions. Yeah. And weight also a huge factor isn't just we think of exercising and we think of what we eat. It's also stress, the the emotional impact of taking on. I mean, think about it uh, metaphorically, right? That the amount of weight that we take on as a caregiver. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's comforting sometimes to have, you know, eat the things that you enjoy. 
yeah. you know, when you're all stressed out. And then the other factor is if you're trying to eat well and have a balanced diet, and it takes a lot of planning and preparation, mm-hmm. which takes time and mental energy, which now you don't even have that. So you're more or less trying to reach for the m- most convenient thing. And that's not the best thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what I hear you saying is your favorite or go-to kind of self-care thing was to be able to check out in a book, go mm-hmm. escape with a book or an audio book, or sounds like you're a big podcast listener too. Oh yeah. <laughs> so <am> I. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Well, tell us a little about, I'm, I'm just, I, I really, really want to highlight your work in this episode because there are so many listeners that are seeking information. And again, they have the information out there from these big associations and medical model sort of places. And there's such value in gathering, hearing other people's stories and just knowing they're not alone. And people like you that are professionals that have been through your own personal experience with dementia, and also people who are not professionals um, in, in healthcare, you know, that have experienced dementia. And so what is the best way if there, if there's a listener today that has never heard of you or your work, and they want to get more information, walk us through the best way to connect with your organization, all's, all's authors, ALZ authors, correct? Correct. So the best thing to do is to go to the website, allsauthors.com. And when you open it up, you'll see that there are many different places to visit, including the blog. So that's where we post the weekly story, new author, new book every week. And the author writes about their dementia journey and what inspired them to tell their story. And you can learn more about their book and about them and how to contact them, how to reach them on social media, where to buy the book. If you wanted to buy the book, you could do that. We also have the podcast. So we have 40 episodes that are up now. And you can just start listening through that, put it on, you know, autoplay one right after another and hear these beautiful stories. I just wanted to mention that I'm really proud of the fact that our authors are not celebrities. They're not uh, names that you'll probably recognize. They're They're just ordinary people like you and me. Who had a story to tell and they managed to tell it and they and they did it well because all the books are vetted. We only have accepted maybe 50 or 60 percent of the books that come our way. It's not easy. I think it's fascinating. I just want I just have to say I'm always looking for books and I have found there are so few out there. They're they're very hard to find. And so the fact that you have a library of over 300 books and that you have a podcast that highlights authors. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is amazing. Mm-hmm. So, I know if you go to Amazon, you can find, you know, you type in books about Alzheimer's, you're going to find hundreds, thousands, maybe of titles com- to look at, but they're not organized in a way that you know, you're going to spend a lot of time. Yeah, going through them all to find what you're looking for, whereas we categorized everything so you can find easier what exactly what you want, whether it's a memoir or a novel or kids book or whatever. A particular type. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to the podcast. What is the name of your podcast? Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia. Okay, Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia. Perfect. Mm -hmm. 
And what else might they find on your website? You said there was a, a bunch of places they could go and yeah, they can, um, we have a video page. So we uh, started that with authors asking our authors to post inspiration, inspirational messages to people about their Alzheimer's journey. And then when COVID came along, we knew that there are a number of people in our author community who are currently caring for a loved one with dementia during COVID, which presents its own specific challenges. So we thought, gee, why don't we have these people do like a one minute video offering encouragement to people caring for loved ones during COVID where, you know, they're, they're trapped in their home and they can't get out. They can't have people in, they can't go to the nursing home. There was a lot of struggles and we had uh, about a handful of different authors in different situations. One man, he, uh, James Russell, he was caring for, he cares for his daughter. She's in a facility with early onset. And another, um, Ginzy Hines, who's caring for her husband with mild cognitive impairment. Richard Creighton is caring for his wife, who's kind of in the mid to late stages. He keeps her at home with supports. He's on the podcast as well. So is Ginzy. A lot of these people still are on the podcast too. And these videos were really very helpful. And they were quick. So you could just pop in, you know, get the message, and then go about your day. So we have a YouTube channel, so you can look us up on YouTube as well. And they're there. And we also have our the replay for our virtual Q&A back in June. It was the first time we did anything like this. We brought together five of the authors living currently living with dementia themselves. Three of them were from the United Kingdom, and two of them were from the United States. One was to, from the U.S., but via South Africa. So it was a very diverse group of men and women who came and met with, I don't know how many people, 50 or 60 people tuned in. It was on Zoom, caregivers and others interested in this topic. And we had a conversation about living with dementia, early onset Alzheimer's. We talked about their depression. One man revealed that he was suicidal and how he overcame that. They talked about managing their finances and their financial situation with a diagnosis like early onset. You you know, you're still in your prime of working years and not retirement eligible. So then it becomes a challenge trying to access your pensions and your funds, which you need now. You can't wait because you may not make it. The date when you start collecting. So that was a big, big thing for a lot of people. And they talked about moving. Several of all but one person had actually moved after their di- diagnosis, mm-hmm. and moving is a huge thing. And and I remembered, you know, working as a nurse trying to encourage seniors to move out of homes that were no longer suitable for them, and in some cases, killing them, killing them, and they just, you know, would not want to ever leave home. They're just such so attached. But a lot of People realize the value in downsizing and moving into a community where there might be more assistance or a smaller place or one level living. Mm -hmm. And so they talked about that. That was good. And we had a really great discussion tackling end of life issues. And some people actually had, you know, an assisted suicide plan 
Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, there was just somebody else who just never even thinks about it. Right. Right. The extreme, the whole, the whole rules and laws and locations mm-hmm. of, around that area. Uh-huh. Yep. That's and you can find that on our YouTube channel. That's fantastic. Is your, uh, what is your YouTube t- channel called? If we were to look All's authors, everything is all's authors, all's authors on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Pinterest, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube. Okay. And then the podcast is Untangling Alzheimer's and Dementia. Yeah, and All's Authors podcast. So if you look, okay. if you type it in All's Authors, you'll find it. It'll come up. Okay. You know, we keep it easy. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> you have just like, I, I'm just so impressed. When did you say you started all this? 2015. Amazing. It, and again, the power of grassroots, the power of community. Even though your community is international, it's still definitely a community and it feels like a community. Marianne, thank you so much. I I so appreciate you taking the time to come on and share this amazing resource and your story, your personal story with everyone. I just want to tell our listeners to, I'm encouraging you big time to reach out and check out, just go to the website, check them out and You'll find whether you're a podcast listener or you want to, you know, find books or um, you're interested in some of these interviews that are up on YouTube. I think that you're going to find some great resources there. So Marianne, I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day and thank you so, so much for coming on. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful that you shared your time with us. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute, nor is it meant to convey professional, legal, psychological, financial, or medical advice. If you can use such services, please seek them out from someone you trust.